Welcome everyone to this episode of the AI Tech Sales Podcast. Uh, it's my privilege today to have Mark Stoos on the podcast. Mark is a LinkedIn uh, celebrity or getting there, uh, but more importantly, he's a longtime large company CMO um, and now runs Proof Analytics. He's the CEO of Proof Analytics, which is an analytics software uh, company designed to help primarily marketing. Mark, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining. Uh, thank you, but God preserve me from celebrity. <laughs> All right, what do we go with? Just uh, only, There's only downside to celebrity. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That is true. Um, but anyway, I, I think uh, I've read some of your stuff on LinkedIn, and obviously you've had, you, you add a lot of value to a lot of people there, so it's fantastic. Tell me about your career, Mark. Highlights for people who don't know you in the audience, um, what it's looked like, what you remember most of, your, of the years of your career. Most of what I really remember, you know, like what's really stuck uh, yeah. are the changes based on suffering, pain and suffering, right? Uh, you know, like in a marketing context, uh, once upon a time, uh, 20 some odd years ago, I was a marketing leader that was pretty similar to every marketing leader, right? Uh, and I, uh, and then I, you know, I went to work for Mark Hurd at HP uh, and Mark was one of those guys that very sales focused and very ops focused. Mm-hmm. And, didn't take any bullshit from anybody and would really had no problem just sticking a knife in you, right? Uh, if that's what he felt was needed. Um, and so he would give all the marketing leaders hell for the fact that we, you know, all the bullshit aside, we really couldn't uh, plan, predict, prove, and pivot our investments with any predictability at all. And like the first time I ever heard the technical term time lag was roughly 25 years ago, 23 years ago, from Mark Hurd when he was he was kind of on a rant with with a number of us. And he he goes, well, what about the time lag? And I'm like, it's time lag. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, now it's kind of like part of my stock and trade is is time lag calculation, right? <clears throat> but uh, and so I just started. I kind of went on a a journey. Right. Uh, it's the only way to really put it. I mean, it's a, everyone says that, but it's really true, mainly because your, your ability to absorb change, particularly in yourself and learning new things is inherently time lagged. So, but the, you know, kind of cutting the story short here for consumability by 2008 or so, we had gone a very, very long way, uh, largely standing on the shoulders of some really awesome data scientists and also uh, the work that Procter & Gamble had done and published about, certainly in their case, in B2C, and we were applying it in B2B. But you know, every data scientist that I worked with would say, you know, mathematically, there's no reason why this only works in one and not the other, right? Tell me a little bit about marketing 20 years ago. Like- Attribution must have been next to impossible, right? I think about all the ways marketing attribution is done today, particularly for online marketing, which is a bulk of it for a lot of people. Virtually impossible. It was not really thought about. The closest that we got at that time was talking about reach. So that most people would recognize that in terms of like impression counts and things like that, right? And an impression isn't even an eyeball. An impression is actually an opportunity to be seen by somebody, not that you actually were seen by somebody. But somehow that definition kind of got blurred a lot, right? And so I guarantee at that time, there were a lot of business leaders who thought it was actual eyeballs on whatever, right? So were marketing decisions at the time just gut decisions primarily, like whatever you felt was right or whatever the leadership felt was right? Yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah. I mean, and to the degree that it was measured, the biggest problem was that measurement, like in anything, right, related to data in isolation, it's always about the past. Yeah. In order to measure something, that thing has to have happened. Yeah. In the past, right? Problem is that in certain times, particularly like right now, where things are really volatile, past is in no way prologue. Right. And so if you extrapolate, which was really what everybody was doing at that time, right? You want to talk about bias? You want to talk about assumptions? Holy mackerel, right? I mean, it was statistically invalid in every possible way. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, and it, you know, and this was also just beginning to really get seriously digital. Hmm. The vast majority of the marketing that was happening in say 2000 to 2004 or five was still very analog. Um, you know, where you, you know, you had like little radio ads or, and, and you had stuff that, that encouraged people to somehow validate where they heard about you. Right. Stuff like that, right? You fill and out so, a card or, or something. Or maybe you go online in a survey. But initially, I think you had, you had like surveys you, you had to fill out on the card and say, you know, we'll give you. I mean, we were it was essentially depending on how you want to look at it. It was yeah. either first touch or last touch. Yes. Measurement, right. Yep. And so that was bad or, you know, un, un, unreliable then as it is today. Not the way the world works, right? Do you think that has meant that what it means to be like a good marketing executive has changed dramatically? Like 20 years ago, it was more about your intuition for the brand, for the audience, et cetera, because you had limited data to rely on. And now it's more about your familiarity and comfort with reading the data, running the experiments or getting your team to run the experiments. So I think actually we're, uh, you know, I'm speaking specifically now on the B2B side. Yep. Because B2C marketing has had a very strong under intellectual underpinning for a long time. Yep. Um, what's really happened in B2B, if we kind of really cut to the chase, is that they strapped increasing digitization and technology, so MarTech stacks, right, onto, they grafted those two things onto their original thought processes, their original assumptions. So first touch and last touch attribution, right? I mean, uh, the only thing that's really changed there is that now you, for a while, you had multi-touch attribution, which also statistically was a total bust. Yeah. And if they had known anything, they were literate about analytics at all. Those would never have even been pursued as ways to get there, right? So, um, so what we what we started to see with the ramifications of COVID, and then particularly in the last year with the macroeconomic deterioration, is a level of volatility that completely, it completely made those ways of understanding, and I'm putting quotes around that, right? Understanding marketing performance, it just totally discredited most of it. And anybody who would tell you otherwise is not living in reality. Yeah. So what 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 is happening right now as a result of that is that there is a go to market revolution that started probably 6 to 8 months ago in quite a few companies that is being led not by marketing and not by sales but by the c suite and there's a number of ways this is being kind of uh, executed but probably one of the most the biggest ones is that uh, and it's all it's kind of rooted 
well, there's more than one thing always, but it's kind of rooted in that how money has gotten a lot more expensive. So <clears throat> they've got the opportunity cost on budgets has gotten a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And so finance is like effectively has nationalized analytics within their company. Very interesting way of putting it. Yep. Right. Uh, and so they have moved uh, data science teams under finance increasingly, mm-hmm. not at all dissimilar, in fact, extremely similar to what happened with enterprise IT 20 some odd years ago after Y2K, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, companies turned around, you know, in 2001, 2002 and said, okay, that was total bullshit. And so we're going to move enterprise IT underneath finance, not because finance knows more about enterprise IT than they do, but we're going to take this opportunity to completely change the culture of IT teams. Right. You know, make it very T-shaped, right? So that everybody is fundamentally coming at this through a business lens first and then technology lens, right? Right. (laughs) They were very successful in that. What do you think? So there are obviously a number of factors. You talked about money being more expensive these days. and That's driving analytics being moved up to the C-suite or to the company as a whole, to the CFO. Um, what else might be driving this? Is there a concern, you know, overspending probably? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, huge. Right. What about like, the? is there is part of what's driving this the fear that analytics is very nichely focused on what every given leader cares about? Like the sales leader wants to show that he or yeah. she is... You know, doing a really good job on his on his um, metrics and the marketing leader, so on and so forth. And sometimes you need something that is cross-functional to get to the real truth. Is that uh, it's absolutely true. I mean, we can start with the fact that there's very few functions that are actually doing multivariable regression analytics, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're just doing kind of what we were talking about earlier, right? They're measuring and they're extrapolating. So I think that there is, uh, and 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 basically the the kind of a commonality across all of their individual functional reports is we're the star, right? Yeah. You know? And so I shoot the three point plays all the time, right? <laughs> guys, the guys on the team that pass me the ball, not so important. Right. Right. Uh, this perfectly curated data report that shows exactly that or as close as possible to that. Yeah, I think that that's actually an extremely polite way of putting it, right? Uh, it is, I mean, the, and this is the vulnerability of data in silo, right? Is it's so easily manipulated. I mean, you can take data and you can make it support both sides of an argument based on how you present it, how you massage it. I mean, you don't even have to commit fraud with it. You can, yeah, you can, you can just, it's the way you kind of cast it. Right. Right. (laughs) So uh, I think there's, I think there's that. I think uh, there is this need uh, to cut costs. uh, But really importantly, a big lesson that the C-suite has learned in a lot of companies is that they don't want to break stuff. So it's kind of like, unless it absolutely totally needs to be broken, right? So want to want to trim the unproductive expense, but I don't want to create a bigger problem. Yep. Doing that, uh, which is really smart. So that's 
classic optimization, that's classic S-curve type analytical work, um, which again has to be done in a larger context. Right, so that's that. It starts the circle gets bigger and bigger because of if you want to if you want to optimize marketing spend, well, optimize relative to what? Yep. So right there, you've introduced at least one other reference point. Hmm. Could be a lot more than that, right? Yeah. So there's that. There's um, yeah. Go ahead. One follow-up question there. So I get this very often. We have, I have this discussion very often with chief revenue officers around what is the ideal structure for your go-to-market teams, right? Should marketing and sales and customer success all roll up to the CRO, for example? Or should you have like CMO separate from the CRO where sales and customer success rolls up to the CRO? Or should you have sales? That's a fantastic question. And I can tell you, I'm in the middle of a book yep. about this revolution. Yep. And that is one of the main pillars of the book, right? Yeah. In terms of what these, so I've interviewed several hundred Fortune 1000 CEOs and CFOs. Um, so I can speak to this, at least for the moment, right? Probably better than almost anybody else, right? Uh, just based on all the information I've taken in. So their problem is, is that they increasingly see this as go to market as one integrated customer experience. Mm -hmm. And they are defining that increasingly, and I agree with this, as go-to-market includes anything that is customer-facing that has an impact, a demonstrable impact, on whether a customer buys or whether they renew. Yep. And when you say they, you're talking about CEOs here or just companies? Yeah, yeah so... so the they that I just said was about the customers of my customers. Yep. Makes sense. Um, and so they are, uh, so to give you a, uh, like a non-standard example, mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, quite a few, uh, but not the majority that would put um, contracting, the, the UX, the, the, the customer, the CX around the contracting in there, they would put the CX around invoicing and collection around there. Because yeah. you can do the product thing perfectly. The actual users could be thrilled, but you could have somebody over there in invoicing constantly pissing off your customer yep. to the point where they don't renew. Wow. Okay, so you've got to you got to kind of think more broadly uh, in terms of what you, increasingly what it really means. You have to think more and more and more like your customer. What's really important to my customer? What's going to piss off my customer? Um, how can I remove friction? All that stuff, right? Are uh, aspects of go to market. And anybody who thinks that removing friction from your product or the onboarding process and, and that that's, it's limited to that, I encourage you to rethink your position, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that in terms of leading it, they're in a conundrum right now. So most of them have told me that, because I asked this question pretty explicitly, um, they would never put the CRO 
let's call it the the sales leader. Hmm. The reason why I'm caveating that is the definition of some of these titles could very easily change over the next two to three years. Yep. But let's instead of using title, let's use function functional leader. Okay. Yep. Um, they would never put the average sales leader in charge of the whole thing because they would destroy the rest of it. Because a lot of a lot of CEOs and CFOs see sales as a one-trick pony that doesn't realize it's a one-trick pony. Interesting. Um, they also don't really feel super great about giving the CMO total control over the whole thing because in a b2b context most cmos have never carried a bag most marketing leaders have never carried a bag most marketers have never carried a bag right and, and there's this perennial conflict between <laughs> what is an mql and sql basically underlying that is when does marketing's responsibility end and when does it go to sales right yeah which is actually a, a, a it's an artifact of very human linear thinking about a fundamentally non-linear process fascinating Okay, I'm going to dive into this a little bit, but so keep going. Uh, for example, even the idea of a funnel graphically is linear, right? Yep. And so now what people are starting to really kind of figure out that it really is pretty nonlinear, but in order to kind of keep it, you know, acceptable or understandable, they'll put all the squiggly lines inside of the funnel, right? right. And you're like, no, nah, it's not really like that at all, right? Uh, so I think that that there is so the other part that that is really problematic between marketing and sales is that sales is so I'm going to define this in terms of cost and leverage okay of that cost sales is a linear function so if I increase my sales leader's total goal by fifty percent. The first thing that he or she is going to say is, well, then I need to hire a lot more sales guys. Yeah. Right. And, and usually, more than yeah. Sorry. Usually to get a 50% increase, you need to hire a lot more than 50%. And even then, it may not, yeah. Because you're going to get attrition. You're going to, you know, you're going to get all that stuff. Right. Um, and so your cost of sales in that sense tracks that the, 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 the target, the revenue target pretty in a pretty linear way. Hmm. Uh, however, if you increase your your revenue goal by 50%, that does not necessarily at all mean that you need to increase your marketing spend because marketing is a non-linear multiplier of a otherwise linear area of business performance. Sales would be an example of that, right? So you're kind of like, like one way to really define this in one sentence is this. Marketing's mission is to help sales sell more product to more customers, that's revenue, faster, that's cash flow from revenue you know, improvement, and more profitably, that's pretty obvious what that is, yep. than sales could do by itself. Yep. So, the value of marketing in this whole equation, the the ROI, okay, is the extent to which marketing is a multiplier on those three vectors, right? I mean, more deals, bigger deals, faster deals, right? Yep. So 
And obviously in a big company, if, you know, like at Honeywell, we could show that we improved average deal velocity 4% or so after about a two-year period of focusing on that. Well, annualized revenue was right around $12 billion at that time. So we got $12 billion moving 4% faster through or into company. I mean, the, the, uh, the CFO was my best friend, right? I mean, seriously. I mean, just on that alone, right? I mean, we made so much money relative for the company, relative to the marketing spend. It was ludicrous, right? So, um, so I think that that's, that's really key there. Um, and you can't, problem is that both of these entities, both of these professions are very parochial. And they've been locked in mortal combat in most companies for a very long time. So levels of trust on average are extremely low. Uh, And so there are major conflicts, right? I I talk to companies, CROs, VPs of sales all the time, and the perennial conflict tends to be this definition of an MQL and Oh, you know, your, the leads you gave me were bad. Well, the sales leader will say, and the yeah, which leader. actually totally is is a is a. You want to talk about a bullshit metric yep. on both ends? Okay, that's it, right? It totally ignores the nonlinearity and the and the whole reason why the relationship works in the first place, right? The multiplier effect, yep. right? The fact that the an accurate representation of how things work in the customer journey, right? Is that both marketing and sales are creating value all the way through the journey in different ways at different times, depending on the customer. Yep. Right. And so I mean, a great example of this, which is totally ignored by MQL, SQL, is if you look at the analytics in high-cost, high-risk B2B purchase decisions. What happens in the top part of the journey is that the customer basically strip mines your website for all the information they can possibly get. They will also search for fundamental information from like analyst firms and people like that. Yep. And about halfway through, they completely disconnect from paid and owned channels. Because from that point forward, the entire thing for them is about risk management and due diligence. Yep. Well, what's the risk that they're seeking to mitigate? It's you, the vendor. It's the veracity of what they have heard about your product from you and maybe from other people, right? So they are they are triangulating for the truth all the way through there. So what does that mean for marketing's contribution, paid and owned contribution? It drops off, but like PR, so-called earned channels, right? Goes way up, way up. Hmm. And that would also include peer-to-peer, by the way, right? Calling your buddy, same position as you saying, Hey, do you, what do you know about proof or whatever, right? Is your experience good? Should I do it? Whatever. Yeah. 
So that is, uh, yeah. So the MQL SQL thing just is totally like if, if I were a CEO or a CFO, I would walk into a meeting with sales and marketing, assuming they're still using that. And I would say, that's just not even remotely representative of what we need to work on together. Mm-hmm. And if I got any resistance to that at all, I'd say, guess what? You have just a few months to get it together, right? And uh, otherwise you're out of here. Yeah. Because we're not putting up with that. Yeah. So going back to the original question, what would you do? What is what is your optimal design? I mean, of course it depends on the company, but- Yeah, so I, so I, I have the same opinion as a lot of sales, uh, sales uh, as a lot of CEOs and CFOs, right? And that is, <clears throat> Functions, functional maturity is about a movement from being I-shaped, which is function first, specialization first uh, kind of perspective, to T-shaped, which is business first, high degree of contextual awareness, high degree of business understanding, right, with still the ability to specialize and maybe even have more than one specialization, right? So I think that where this is going is not at all dissimilar from where other functions that have already moved through this have have ended up. CIO is a great example. Successful CIOs today are business leaders who happen to specialize in tech. Yep. Uh, I think that is exactly who is going to rise to ultimate leadership, whether you call it a chief growth officer, doesn't matter what you call it. the person who ultimately is accountable for that entire linkage across go to market is is going to be a business leader mm. who doesn't really give a rip about functional loyalty. Yep. I mean that's where I am. I'm a I'm I mean the 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 biggest the longest I've spent as any one thing in my career would have to be a marketer, right? Um, am I still sort of a marketer? Yeah, sort of. But as CEO, I can't afford those kinds of artificial biases, right? So what that really means, um, you know, probably unfortunately for some, right, is that I am the world, you know, within my company, I am the most knowledgeable consumer of marketing around, right? So that means Sometimes marketers approve for kind of on the spit, right? And we consume our own dog food, right? So this is the other thing. You know, the analytics are incredibly important, but there is no silver bullet here, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a guidance thing more than anything else. And you still have to wrap it with contextual understanding and all that kind of stuff that is not necessarily measured yeah so you know i mean it, it's it significantly increases your chances of being right but it's not a guarantor fascinating <laughs> I, there's so much more to dive into there mark but i want to talk a little bit about ai and how, what are you hearing from your customers um for mmm and mrm software and you should probably say what those mean too for the benefit of the audience what are you hearing from them what are they excited about what are they less than enthused about so this is kind of re- these are two products that kind of the categories kind of represent accountability and optimization. 
The MRM is marketing resource management. You can easily and accurately think of it as an ERP for marketing or go to market. Yep. Right. Does all the stuff that any ERP does for any function that it specializes for. Right. Um, and that's the accountability side. The, the MMM marketing mixed modeling or automate, you know, go to market mixed modeling, or some people just really prefer to call it, you know, automated multivariable regression, you know, whatever rose by any other name is still rose. Right. Um, it is the optimization piece. So it's going to dynamically show you uh, the strength of relationships of different things that you're doing or that other people are doing or that, you know, stuff you have no control over against a particular outcome. And it's going to show it to you dynamically. So as things change, this is where it operates very much like a GPS up to and including, Hey man, the road you're on, it was really good, but now things have really changed. So you need to take a right, take a left, take another right. You know, if you stay where you are, you'll be an hour late to your business meeting or whatever. And if you reroute, you'll be eight minutes late with an explainable variance, right? Otherwise known as an excuse, right? <laughs> um, and so I think that Uh, where AI intersects with this, and this is where, you know, definitionally AI is sort of fraught right now. Yeah. Um, different people are starting to include things into AI that some cases maybe should have been in AI from the get-go. In other cases, it shouldn't be. It's not AI. Yeah. In some cases, though, is while it may not be AI, is inseparable from the operation of AI tools. Give me an example of that last one. Automation. Yeah. Automation is not AI, okay, but it is inseparable from the operation of AI. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, if you want to, if you want to have a deeply technical conversation about how many angels dance on the head of the AI pin, uh, <laughs> then then you can always do that. Um, I don't, I don't care. I, I see it as so inseparable from AI that it effectively is AI, even though technically it's by itself, it's not right. Um, AI is, is also, is just really for all of its good stuff is terribly fraught. And let's just start with, and, I, and I'm, I'm not even going to go into the ethical part of it right now. I'm just going to stick with pure demonstrable operational issues. So LLMs. Public LLM uh, uses as training data all everything that's reachable on the internet. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that as, as we all kind of intuitively have experienced in the last, say, five or six years in particular, uh, a lot of what's on the internet is bullshit. It's just factually not true. Yep. The AI right now, the LLM, is not differentiating. You can't. And I mean, without like, it, it, it captures everything, right? Right. There's, there's no scoring system, really. Yes. There's no way for it to differentiate. And so 
like I've tested various LLMs uh, asking it to write a academic research paper on something I'm particularly interested in, in history, 15th century, history of technology kind of stuff, in which there's a lot of stuff on the internet, but it's also kind of arcane knowledge. Hmm. Most people are just not gonna know, but I've been studying it a long time in the original texts, so I have a pretty good grasp on it. What came back, you know, three, four, five minutes later, uh, in every case, right, was, beautifully formatted, um, fully footnoted. Um, and if you didn't know anything about that topic, you would say, wow, this sounds really great. Yeah. But if you know anything about it, you could drive trucks through the holes in the paper. Like your professor would totally give it an F, right? right? And particularly they would give it an F because in every single case that I tested, um, some percentage, usually around a third of the footnotes were fabricated. They weren't real. Yeah. Like I mean, that's, the, that's the challenge, right? It's convincingly and self-assuredly wrong. It's not just wrong with hesitation. It is convincing. Like it's, yeah. as I said, it would fool a novice. Yeah. And even something as, you know, I asked uh, uh, one of them to write a, um, an explanation of regression analytics for a layperson. It had three factual errors in it, right? And this is something that's been around several hundred years minimum. I mean, it depends on how far, how you really define it. But I mean, there's an identifiable part of the algorithm in the R code today right, that was actually written by Aristotle. So, I mean, it's been around a long time. It, there should be like zero errors. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a real problem now. And it gets even worse when you say, well, I'm just going to run, I'm going to create and run a private LLM. So the reason why that's a problem is that the average company has a very small amount of big data. And all of this is a big data solution. AI is a big data solution. Yep. One of the reasons why I don't agree with regression being placed in, usually in machine learning, which is a subset of AI, right? Is that regression is a lean data solution. So if you're running your own private LLM, you have a vastly contracted, pool of data to use, mm -hmm. which means that you are far more vulnerable statistically to error of all kinds, right? So, I mean, it just gets really, and, you know, and, then, and then it's the ripple effects into decision-making that make it really scary. So like as an investor, I'm looking at two companies right now that have LLM-driven uh, buyer apps in beta. So these are apps that help you know what to buy and ultimately take it all the way to a final decision. And, they, and, they, and their data set is the internet or? They just yeah. The internet. Okay. And so that tees up a massive war. So the classic struggle between attack and defense, right? On 
content. And I mean content of the type that you write for SEO. So this is content that you that is not made to be read by any human being alive. Mm-hmm. So it's invisible. It's not transparent to humans. So I'm aware of a company right now that is uh, not only uh, seeking to manipulate that kind of stuff with very pro their product type of content, but they're actively depositioning their competitors again, invisibly. Right. And I guarantee you these competitors have no idea that this is happening. Right. And so it's just going to, it's going to be a mess. It's just, it's going to be, you know, and, and, and I'm very, actually, I know it doesn't sound like it, but I'm very pro AI. Yeah. But I, you know, you're a fool if you don't acknowledge the problems. I think about search engine optimization, right? And it's always, this has been a back and forth battle for a long, long time where people try to game the SEO algorithm and then Google responds with, you know, its algorithm is private and secret, so you can game it only to a certain extent. And so I wonder how that plays out with LLMs. You know, is there going to be one kind of LLM research app that you use or, you know, these buyer apps, but broadly sort of research apps that you use? And is, is it going to have to be the sort of thing where the algorithm is secret and private so it can't be gamed with what I would call LLM optimization, the equivalent of SEO? I think that the, that the only way that you can prevent it is to also have a uh, an llm that discriminates yep right between content yep types and quality levels and agendas right probable agendas um yeah i mean i, I think that that's that's good because the, the difference between seo and llm is that seo is really primarily a quantitative thing when it comes to content mm-hmm not, I'm not saying it's not quali- uh, qualitative at all, but it is mostly quantitative, yep. right? LLM is actually both, like to the max. And the other thing you can't really do directly in SEO is deposition, in, you know, in its worst possible example, tell lies about other people's products, right? But when you're writing content for LLMs, you can totally do that. Yep. Like the bar to create new content has, go, has gone down to zero almost. <laughs> yeah. It's, cost, it's the cost of hitting an LLM API, which is very little. And so then, the, then you know, again, this is just pure statistical basics, right? So right now, LLM is processing let's call it primarily human generated content on the web, right? And it's doing a bunch of stuff and creating new content that is AI LLM authored content that represents all of the best and the worst. So one of the things we're already seeing is the LLMs like people, okay, tend to gravitate into extreme positions. Right. Right, one bias or another bias. Well, that's a real problem because then it, you know, then basically as the LLM, the percentage of LLM content on the web goes up and up and up and up and up, and it's more biased and more biased. And now you're seeing LLMs pull increasingly on LLM content to create more LLM contract content. So 
everything's being compounded, right? That's a huge problem. So there's going to have to be a way to differentiate. If there's not, we're all going to be living in a... Trust will just reduce dramatically. It'll go away. Like people won't decide. Yeah. 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 I mean, we will have destroyed our own advancement, right. the utility of our own advancement, right? Yes. And you'll go back to your older, old, age-old ways of trust and reliability. You ask your friends, peer networks, stuff like that, because the internet is no longer a reliable place. I mean, it's less and so less and less so anyway, but it might become far yeah. less. No, I mean, so a great comparison. I mean, a recent analog to what we're talking about is Facebook. Right? I mean, um, the algorithm was written to present you with more and more exciting content, which usually meant, in particularly in the context of, say, the last 10 years, more and more inflammatory content. Um, and then you kind of, a lot of people started saying, well, I just not going to expose myself to this anymore. Uh, so I'm out. Close mm-hmm. my account. So something that is potentially really, really valuable in terms of all kinds of positive, let's call it awareness or education, whatever, right? Gets, gets compromised, maybe not destroyed, but gets compromised to the point where a lot of people no longer reference it. Twitter is another great example of this, right? I mean, I think that that probably one of the greatest ironies on, you know, rebranding is that he rebranded it as X because I think it's going to be X'd, right? I think that the number of people who should be major users of X are resigning their accounts right now. I mean, I see them all the time. I'm probably getting ready to resign mine. Right. So last question for you, Mark. One thing you're excited about in terms of AI in the next five years from a B2B application perspective? So I think that history shows us over and over and over again that technology is a multiplier of human ability and behavior. That can be both good and bad, but it's not about the technology. It's about the people wielding the technology and what they're doing. Um, I am not a person who believes that there's going to be like this catastrophic job loss scenario, you know, and that just like there's not a lot of lights out data centers around the world, there's not going to be a lot of lights out anything, right? It's just not in the nature of it. So I see AI properly calibrated and constructed and delivered as something that's going to make a lot of people's jobs far more rewarding. It's sort of like, um, say, 15 years ago, when I was at BMC Software, what we were all about, and our competitors were about, was data center automation. And initially, same freak out, right? Oh my God, you know, we're going to end up with half the number of people, maybe 20% of the number of people that we now have working in the data center. Quite the contrary, what happened was is that data center automation automated all of the necessary, uh, repetitive, crap roles, crap duties, right, that had to be done 
okay, but weren't really adding a whole lot of value and released all that talent to far more important, let's call it strategic level roles. Right. The number of actual attrition was extremely low. And so I think the same thing is going to be true here. Now, are there business leaders who are actively fantasizing right now about, you know, some idea that they can cut their workforce in half and be five times as profitable with AI as without it and all that. Yeah. But you know what? Those people always exist and they always, that, that line of thought always burns them. It just always does. Right. Um, because, you know, among other things, there are some really important things that AI, at least for the foreseeable future, that, you know, AI, and again, this is a big lumpy category, but is not going to be able to be programmed to handle. Like the idea that we're even close to human type consciousness in AI is just complete crap. Also, psychologically, I mean, this is actually happening with quantum computing right now. Um, and quantum computing is awesome stuff right but because because the calculations are never processed exactly the same way twice and because even what is done isn't transparent there are major trust issues they're sort of irrational it's the explainability of what's happening right <laughs> explainability of what's happening makes people have irrational trust issues and uh and and is is it true like is it factually accurate I always prefer that to the word true. Um, is it factually accurate? No, it's not, right? But it doesn't really matter, it, it, humanly speaking. It doesn't matter. If I, if I refuse to rely on it, then its utility is gone. You have to be, it has to be believable or believable for that specific application, right? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, for what's what, I agree with you. Like freeing up humans to achieve more of their potential, work on things that they're more excited about, um, things that are still out of reach for AI. Uh, that's going to be that's going to be an interesting and exciting world. Lots of change, but that's the nature of the of life, I guess. It is. I mean, I, I do think though that at the same time we have to be very mindful. So sorry, right now I cannot remember his name. The guy at Google who resigned, Jeff Hinton. Yeah, the so-called father of AI, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when somebody with of that stature suddenly has an Oppenheimer moment and goes, "Whoa, really concerning." Okay, we have to take that into account, right? It doesn't mean that that the whole thing needs to be scrapped. I think that when, even though a lot of this stuff has been around for even years prior to a year ago, when it popped uh, into the public consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, that was a big moment when, it, when, when all of a sudden chat GPT uh, went viral, that was quite a moment. I mean, that, that's a, that's a epoch defining moment. Broad acceptance of GPT, of the awareness of it, I think something like 30 million users, MAUs, and awareness amongst half of the United States, right? And it's crazy to think about an app that has achieved that in months. But I think that's all we have time for today, Mark. It was fantastic having you on the podcast. So many interesting insights around how to structure a go-to-market team, your views on AI, what is, what is glitter, what is actually gonna be meaningful, some concerns and things to be aware of in terms of how AI progresses. Happy to have the conversation. It was, you're, you did a great job too. Thank you.